Welcome back to Hindsight is 2019, where we look at 250 years of Dartmouth's history through 25 objects from the library's archive, one per decade. I'm Katherine Crithers, and I'll be your host for this extension episode on the 1920s. Founded in 1769, Dartmouth College only graduated sons for over 200 years finally admitting women as members of the class of 1976 to much internal backlash, which isn't all that surprising. And if you want to learn more, is unpacked by Laura Barrett and Peter Carini in the 1970s episode, Daughters of Dartmouth. Dartmouth, both as an institution and community, has been proud. Proud of its students and alumni, as well as of its reputations and traditions. Although these loyalties are often the building blocks of storied institutions, they don't always lead to just or happy endings. It's true today, but arguably more so in the early 20th century, that the college prided itself on creating tried and true Dartmouth men. These men were well-adjusted, well-educated, and considered to be of both high moral and personal character, the supposed picture of masculinity. This question of masculinity is all-important and complicated, and two external circumstances didn't make it any easier. Following World War I, these students' masculinities were formed within both the Dartmouth culture and military one, as students suspended their studies to join the military, alumni enlisted, and others became student soldiers, training in military skills while still attending class. Additionally, the beginning of the 20th century is the first time Dartmouth has a national reputation rather than just a regional one. It's in this climate that Ernest Martin Hopkins, class of 1901, becomes the college's 11th president in 1916. And it's also the climate in which, in September 1918, two young men began their freshman fall. Clifford Orr, and James Harvey D. Zuckerman, or Kip and Zuck to their friends, joined Dartmouth as members of the class of 1922. Not much is known about Zuckerman's freshman fall, but Orr described his term in letters to his parents. He lived in 35 North Mass, which still houses first years today, enlisted in the U.S. Army, and would remain a student soldier until his birthday, November 11th, when the armistice was signed. And, like many freshmen, Orr chose to participate in Fraternity Rush, but did not receive a bid. While it's possible that Orr's and Zuckerman's paths crossed during these first few months, it wasn't until 1919 that the young men joined the Dramatic Association, enabling them to be members of the Dartmouth Players, a student-run acting troupe which auditioned new members each spring. Although close friends, the two served very different roles for the troupe. Orr was primarily a writer and director, eventually authoring many of the troupe's original productions. Zuckerman, on the other hand, was on stage. In those days, the Dartmouth players, like the college, consisted only of men, some of whom portrayed women. These actors were then called female impersonators, and most were praised for their performances, receiving many favorable reviews for productions at the college and while traveling. For two years, Zuckerman was a prominent female impersonator for the troupe. Their first two years at Dartmouth passed like those of most students, concerned with food, grades, and how cold it gets in the winter. But at the start of their junior year, Orrin Zuckerman did something slightly unusual. On October 6, 1920, in a letter to his mother, Orr describes, Harvey Zuckerman and I did rather a crazy thing last week. He's the leading lady, you remember. We were going to the Vermont State Fair at White River, and at the last moment, we decided to dress him as a girl and take him. 
but he wouldn't do it alone, so I said I would do it with him. Well, we scoured the dramatic rooms for costumes and finally found things that would fit and harmonize. I wore a light lavender summer dress, white silk stockings, black pumps, high-heeled, a blonde wig and a deep lavender hat, and carried a dark green sunshade. Zuck wore the same kind of a dress and hat, only his was blue, and he had a bobbed henna wig and carried a black and white parasol. George and Jimmy got an auto and took us to the fair, and we walked all around the grounds for a long time and got away with it perfectly. In fact, we got away with it so well that it wasn't very thrilling, because very few people even looked twice at us, and only three times did we get discovered, and then it was by fellows who knew us. We went to a couple of sideshows and did everything as if we really were women. George and Jimmy wouldn't be seen walking with us, though. Before we went, we walked down the streets of Hanover and had a huge crowd follow us, because of course they knew who we were. I think I had to pose for pictures about a thousand times. If I get a hold of one, I'll send it along to you. In some ways, we can imagine that Zuckerman and Orr had extended the stage on which their female impersonators usually performed all the way to the Vermont State Fair. And this time, their audience, rather than being primed by a playbill, was unsuspecting. By extending the stage, these men inadvertently called attention to the performance of gender and what is usually considered offstage, everyday life. And there's a lot of care and thought put into cultivating their performance. Orr's descriptions of the clothes and his rhetoric of scouring for an outfit that would harmonize showcases an intention to detail. Even though the excursion isn't an official action on behalf of the Dartmouth players, it's likely that their experiences in the troupe opened up the possibility. Acting taught them how to gender their bodies and behavior so they might be coded as women. Whether or not they got away with it perfectly isn't entirely clear. It's probably acceptable to infer that, from Orr's perspective, the crowd following them was a good thing. In fact, Orr seems almost excited that they were, as he puts it, discovered. Orr's excitement might indicate something about the stakes. Throughout history as well as today, many transgender individuals' lives have been threatened or even ended due to hate crimes for not passing. But Orr almost wants to be recognized. It makes the excursion exciting to him, so he can't be too concerned about the consequences. But even then, not everyone is comfortable. Their two friends, George and Jimmy, won't be seen with Orrin Zuckerman at the fair. George is most likely George Frost, member of the class of 1921, one of Orr's close friends since arriving at Dartmouth. Jimmy is probably Orr's current roommate, often referenced in letters from his junior year. Most importantly, both George and Jimmy are either current or eventual members of the Dartmouth players which means that, within the acting troupe, there is division. There is at least some discomfort with gender fluidity offstage. This dis-ease may indicate a limited acceptance, that there's a line between what occurs on stage and what occurs offstage, and, though they might not realize yet, when those lines become blurred, there are lasting consequences. Five months later, on March 26, 1921, President Hopkins addressed a letter to a highly regarded psychologist, Dr. Charles P. Bancroft. The letter concerns one James Harvey D. Zuckerman, with the hope that Dr. Bancroft, who resided in the area, might be able to help him. The letter reads, Dear Dr. Bancroft, I am exceedingly anxious to send one of our boys down to talk with you because I feel certain of the advantage that it will be to him to feel free to talk with somebody, and I know that he will be helped by what you may be able to say to him. The boy's name is James H.D. Zuckerman, and he is a junior in college and comes from Harrison, New York. 
I do not think that in his case abnormality has gone to any detrimental extent as yet, and I would not willingly urge the boy into anything that would make him feel that he is an exception to the ordinary run of men, but I do feel very strongly that he needs to be helped on reversing certain tendencies of his. I believe that the opportunity to sit down and to feel free to talk with you will be a distinct help to this end. So far, President Hopkins has been talking around Zuckerman's perceived issue using language such as abnormality and that which produces an exception to the ordinary run of men. But suddenly, President Hopkins becomes uncharacteristically direct and in doing so, reveals his true concerns with not only Zuckerman, but the college in general. The fact is, however, that we have had a distinct tendency among a considerable number of the men who have played the so-called leads and girl characters to develop exotic and unnatural instincts, which are thoroughly out of keeping with what the college means to stand for. In one case, three years ago, the boy wandered off from Hanover and safeguarded the college reputation to the extent that he committed suicide in New York rather than here, but the underlying fact was that his affection for one of his dramatic club associates was not only unappreciated but was rebuffed. We have had one other case in which I would a good deal rather the boy would have committed suicide. Even though it's not out of keeping with predominant conceptions of homosexuality from that period, much of this letter is not only appalling, but devastating, especially that last sentence. President Hopkins has already hinted that what's at stake is Dartmouth's reputation, but he describes the concern in context of a national issue. We have been remarkably free from the deviations from normal and sex aberrations, which have been so serious a condition in many of the colleges on the, in the country and we have taken every possible precaution to watch and guard against any outbreak of this. I hope that we may be spared what many of the others have had to experience, but I am becoming more and more convinced that under any circumstances we need, and ought to have, the constant observation of a competent man in mental hygiene. This letter solidifies President Hopkins' belief that homosexuality, or really any departure from heterosexual culture, poses a threat to the concept of a Dartmouth man. But it's not just the administration which illustrates this belief. The student body does too. Three years after his graduation, Clifford Orr would write to President Hopkins weighing in on an event affecting members of the Dartmouth players, more specifically, three of their female impersonators. In his letter from October 30th, 1925, Orr reflects on his junior spring. He says, Harvey made one regretted, rash, and unfortunate slip against his judgment and his truly fine and upright nature. You handled him in a manner that did much for him and awoke uneradicable respect for you in Dartmouth. The mob did not know, nor did I, his closest companion. I will tell you that at the time, spring of my junior year, a misguided classmate came to me and told of certain whisperings of a dread sort concerning me, Zuckerman, Patterson, and Jones, which were being circulated among a very small group that they'd reached the dean and the president, and that shortly a terrific bomb would burst. I laughed at him. Harvey, I knew, had hardly been out of my sight during a waking hour. Patterson and Jones, I knew, and saw only at dramatic rehearsals. I had never in three years at Dartmouth heard one shady word, suggestion, or rumor. But though I laughed and refused as he urged me to drop Harvey from my acquaintance, I stayed awake nights and thought and waited for this bomb. A dozen times I was ready to go to you and ask you what it was all about, but in the terrible fear that an undergraduate has for the administration, I dreaded to precipitate matters of any kind, the innocent and totally ignorant of anything underhand, though I was and though I thought the others to be. 
And even now, I cannot believe that anything to be concerned about except Harvey's affair occurred in Hanover during my residence there. These two letters lead us to question, then, what did the Dartmouth players represent to the college? And more specifically, to President Hopkins, the players themselves, and the rest of the student body. It's clear that by 1921, the Dramatic Association was a concern for President Hopkins. It's possible that the concern is generated by the incidents he describes, but it's also plausible that there's another reason. President Hopkins had a personal interest in the Dartmouth players because he was one. In a senior yearbook, he's listed as manager of properties for the Dramatic Association, making him a member of their leadership board. During President Hopkins' senior year, the players performed the musical comedy Hunting for Hawkins. And the performance files from this production include something particularly intriguing. Archived in the folder are three photographs that seem slightly out of place. All three are labeled as a picture of Henry Nichols Sanborn, class of 1902. In one, he's wearing a sheet dress, lounging on a couch. In the next, his face is covered as he bends to unclip the garter holding up his over-the-knee stockings. His corset is partially undone, exposing his chest. In the third photo, Sanborn is in a private room, what looks like a dormitory. He's lying on a narrow bed, wearing a wig and makeup, naked from the waist down except for the same black stockings. His genitalia are hidden by crossed legs and a sheet is draped over the upper part of his chest. Although in costume, it's evident that these pictures weren't intended for the playbill. Cast photographs are all against the backdrop and printed on thicker paper. In fact, there are official cast photos of Sanborn in his role as Mrs. Ashley. It's also important to note that in 1901, drag culture was not very prevalent in the United States, gaining popularity in the 1920s. It's impossible to know when these private photographs were taken, by whom, or if President Hopkins knew about them. But it's certain that Sanborn and President Hopkins did know each other. The playbill for Hunting for Hopkins lists Ernest Martin Hopkins in the roles of Lieutenant Summerfield of the New York Police and William a servant, alongside Henry Nichols Sanborn as Mrs. Matilda Ashley, a proud society woman. In the archives, this is the second time that men affiliated with the Dartmouth players used their knowledge of gender performance to push its boundaries beyond the stage, publicly and privately. It's important to clarify that this wasn't the only perception of the Dartmouth players. For Clifford Orr, who wasn't usually on stage, the opportunity to perform in one of the chorus girl roles was exciting. On March 13, 1921, Orr wrote to his parents describing, I guess I didn't tell you, but while we were at Northampton, one of our best chorus girls had to go running off to Ohio because of the death of his mother, and at the last minute, I had to go on and dance in his place. According to George, I looked like the heroine of any movie western comedy, the girl the cowboy loves. This George is probably the same friend referenced in the Vermont State Fair letter, the one who refused to be seen with Orrin Zuckerman while they were dressed as women. But here... George's praise is genuine, or at the very least, that's how Orr received it. And when Orr was offered another opportunity to perform, he was excited. He writes, Now, since I've been back, I've been rushing with more rehearsals and the editing of the Bema. I have to get out the commencement number, you know. And here it is, prom day after tomorrow, and, and yesterday, in the annual freshman picture rumpus, one of the chorus girls broke his ankle. And so Minnie the Western girl has got to dance again. Minnie isn't the name of Orr's character. In the playbill, none of the chorus girls are named and nowhere in the character list is a Minnie. The name could have been given to Orr by another actor. It could be a common practice in creating a character identity, or it could have been chosen by Orr himself. 
Either way, the naming demonstrates a personal investment in cultivation of a distinct identity. But not everyone felt there could be a separation between what occurred on stage and what occurred off stage. And furthermore, the idea that the role in the Dartmouth players would encourage this blurring was extremely discomforting. Richard Morin, member of the class of 1924 and former Dartmouth player, donated a photograph of himself in one of the players' winter carnival performances. In the acquisition correspondence, Morin is writing to the library, and he himself was an archivist, working at Dartmouth in this role. In the letter, he describes his experience as a female impersonator. This was one of a series of female impersonations which my plump and fair-skinned youth launched me on, beginning in secondary school. By the time I reached junior year at Dartmouth, I had run the entire gamut from maid to matron, and had become so alarmed at the rapidity of the aging process that I quit just before being cast as an expiring grandmother. He continues, As is to be inferred from the grammatically indifferent note on the reverse side, the hussies depicted are, from left to right, Richard W. Morin, 24, and Malin M. Meyer, 23. We were twin Phil de Joie in the 1921 carnival show my freshman year. Philly's de Joie is a euphemism for prostitutes. The playbill doesn't refer to these characters as hussies or prostitutes. They're listed as ladies of the chorus, with ladies in quotations. Whether or not the characters' dress indicated they were prostitutes or if this is an exaggeration, we may never know. But the question of performed sensuality and eroticism by the chorus ladies is even more intriguing given Morin's current views of those years. In those days, before Freud had held up the specter of transvestism for all to ponder on, these antics seemed mildly amusing, but today they seem sinister and psychotic. My rapid disqualification of face and figure now enables me to say, There, but for the God of grace, go I. Morin might be referring to Freud's 1927 essay, Fetishism, in which Freud explains his theory of the creation of fetishes and their relation to transvestism. What's striking about Morin's response is the strength of his condemnation, especially having been a female impersonator for so long, since high school. Additionally, Morin retroactively labels his experience as negative. It's only after someone else, in this case Freud, indicates a relationship between gender performance and sexuality that he draws a line, and it's the same line that Hopkins and Orr drew. But all of this brings us back to March 1921, when President Hopkins writes Dr. Bancroft, who offers his medical opinion. On March 30th, 1921, Dr. Bancroft responds that he would be glad to talk with Mr. Zuckerman and to render the young man any assistance I can for making a healthy adjustment in any of his mental mechanisms. He describes, I think it is very important for a young man in this rather critical period of adolescence not to allow perverted and abnormal sex deviations to get any entrance into the field of his inner consciousness. In some suggestible minds, At this critical period, perverted sex conceptions occupy too prominent a place in the ideational field, and if not displaced with healthier, more virile and useful ideation, unfortunate results may ensue. In the second paragraph, Dr. Bancroft addresses President Hopkins' question concerning acting. My experience has led me to think that these morbid sex aberrations are decidedly rare and are the exception rather than otherwise, especially in the case of the usual active college man. But in the occasional young man in whom there is an unusually active sex imagination, 
I can conceive this taking of female parts in plays might suggest a train of thought to such a mind that would be injurious, and if not counteracted at the outset and corrected, might lead to some of the types of sex perversion. A suggestion harmless and insignificant at first in certain types of minds might develop into a harmful, erotic habit of mind. As I have said, I think this result is very rare and is the exception, but nevertheless, I think that you are quite right in exercising such supervision over this sort of dramatics that the hypersensitive, imaginative temperament, even though exceptional, will not be perverted into certain abnormal channels. Following the receipt of this letter, President Hopkins writes to Zuckerman, informing him that Dr. Bancroft agreed to see him. And so, at 3 p.m. on Thursday, March 31, 1921, Zuckerman meets with Dr. Bancroft at the psychologist's home in Concord, New Hampshire. There's no knowing exactly what was said in this meeting, although a few days later, on April 4th, Dr. Bancroft writes to President Hopkins with a summary of the consultation and his professional recommendations. I examined last week the young man whom you sent me and found him to be a fairly typical case of sex inversion with decided tendencies toward homosexuality. His is a case of inversion rather than perversion. The usual explanation of this condition is that in the process of early development through childhood and a period approaching puberty, the harmony between the physical sex growth and the psychical sex development does not occur as it normally should. Zuckerman's psychical sex differentiation did not keep pace with his physical sex development. This explanation is probably based in Freudian beliefs that homosexuality was the result of sexuality having not matured to heterosexuality. Bancroft continues, There is a difference of opinion as to how much congenital and hereditary influences may be determining factors in the evolution of homosexuality. Whether this sex inversion is due to some deep-seated, transmitted biological tendency, or whether there is delayed sex differentiation in the development of the individual, in the majority of cases, the habit does not necessarily indicate a diseased or a vicious mind. Bancroft again returns to President Hopkins' initial question concerning the dramatic association. He says, I think you are right in recognizing the importance of setting the young man aright, both for his own future and because these weaknesses are not consistent with the high ideals of the college. I was interested in what you said about dramatic impersonations. In normally constituted young men, the impersonation of women's parts would exert no baleful influence. But upon individuals having this tendency to inversion, I can conceive dramatics might have a pernicious effect. In this particular case, Z informed me that he thought his impersonations might have had a subconscious effect. In this connection, it is interesting to note that in the dramatic profession, there's a large proportion of inverts. Possibly the temperamental disposition of the actor may have something to do with this. Z talked very freely and frankly with me and seemed very anxious to cure his tendency. I talked encouragingly to him and told him that the whole matter was within his control, that there was no evidence of mental defect, and so with him, recovery would be a matter of self-determination and willpower. In the first place, I advised him that he must give up the impersonation of female parts. He seemed anxious to continue in dramatics, for which he assures me he has a great liking, and in which he says he has attained some success. 
he told me he could do something in a managerial way next year and could give up impersonations. Is this so? Better get out of it altogether, but if he takes a hold of it in the right way and gives up impersonations, perhaps the work can be tolerated. It's clear that through these correspondences, Dr. Bancroft both legitimizes President Hopkins' concern and encourages his instinct to police the group. The rest of Bancroft's letter describes the therapies he recommended to Zuckerman. In the next place, I told him he ought to take physical culture under a trained teacher. He does not care for baseball nor football. Such boys do not. He does like tennis. I told him he ought to play regularly every day, after which he should take a shower and have a good rub down. Hydrotherapy is excellent for these cases. Or... I told him that he should fill his mind with useful thoughts and crowd out this morbid ideation. Cultivate some hobby, such as ornithology, botany, or any one of the natural sciences which would take him out into the open and naturally and pleasantly divert his mind. And... The more active he is, the better he will be. Like all such individuals, he does not care much for society. A dinner party is a bore. Consequently, he should be made to get out of himself. He says he is no mixer. I think he is a little inclined to the shut-in type of personality. I told him that one important part of this treatment was the projecting his mind outward and not allowing himself to become too much of a recluse, too much of a prey to unnatural and morbid thoughts. I believe that he needs someone who knows his weaknesses to watch him and make him follow up the proper regimen. These so-called treatments reveal an early 20th century medical understanding of homosexuality, as well as expectations of masculinity. Perhaps unsurprisingly, there's a focus on activity and athletics. The suggestion for natural science, such as ornithology and botany, may be due to the Victorian practices that encourage individual documentation of plants and animals. Finally, Dr. Bancroft's concerns surrounding the shut-in type of personality, or what we might refer to today as an introvert, is mirrored in the mental hygiene report he publishes about Dartmouth College. In the report, Dr. Bancroft strongly criticizes the presence of introversion in college men while celebrating extroversion as indicative of a healthy disposition. After this initial appointment, President Hopkins began a correspondence with Zuckerman's family, and Dr. Bancroft continued to check in on him through President Hopkins. Following the Easter break, Zuckerman offered to leave the college. There's nothing in the archives from Zuckerman, but President Hopkins related their discussion to Dr. Bancroft, saying, He made a perfectly straightforward and frank statement of his talk with you and of what you had said to him. He further had gone home and talked with the whole matter over with his own people, and I think the influence of this was thoroughly good. His first statement was that he felt that he owed it to the college to safeguard it from any embarrassment, and that he wished to proffer his resignation as a member of the college, to be accepted if it would be of the slightest help to those in authority. He did this in fine spirit and, I think, in complete honesty. I told him that if we had wished him to go, we would have separated with him without waiting for his offer, but that I appreciated the spirit in which he had spoken. We'll never know whether or not this conversation occurred as President Hopkins describes, but he's clearly pleased by Zuckerman's offer, and in another letter, so is Dr. Bancroft. The appreciation of Zuckerman's proffered resignation may be twofold. First, we're already aware of President Hopkins' concern with the college's reputation, so Zuckerman's own fear of causing the college embarrassment is affirming. 
But additionally, the offer is a sort of recognition by Zuckerman that he's committed a transgression and that his behavior is not appropriate for Dartmouth men. Even if Zuckerman did not follow all of Dr. Bancroft's advice, he did stop performing. His senior yearbook lists him as the troop secretary. He's also listed as vice president of his class, so it's unlikely that anyone else truly knew what occurred. Finally, following this correspondence, President Hopkins eventually appoints Dr. Bancroft as consultant in mental hygiene at Dartmouth College, which establishes the psychologist as one of the first iterative of a college counselor, ensuring further supervision of the behaviors of Dartmouth students. And so, President Hopkins' concern seems to fade into the background. That is, until 1925, when a new policy is instituted outlawing female impersonators, and a prominent female impersonator is expelled from the college. On May 26, 1925, the college student newspaper, The Dartmouth, published an article on the player's production, He Who Gets Slapped, with the subtitle, Players Institute New Policy in Using Outside Talent for Feminine Roles. The article reveals that, if successful, the policy will govern all future Dartmouth players' productions. Over the next few years, productions consisting only of men would be phased out, replaced by local women performing the women's roles. For President Hopkins, it would seem that any lingering concerns surrounding the Dartmouth players should finally be resolved. But on October 8, 1925, he writes the faculty advisors of the Dartmouth fraternity, Epsilon Kappa Phi. Initially, he points to drinking, drugs, and various forms of moral degeneracy as the source of the issue. In the letter, his focus shifts to censuring a group of men within the fraternity, and his criticism is scathing. He writes, Twice within a week, I have heard it stated in undergraduate organizations that certain influences within the fraternity were the most undesirable things in the college, and, on the basis of all that I believe, I should state the case stronger than this. Naturally, I prefer that the fraternity should wash its own dirty linen rather than to have to have the college become the laundry, but it has got to be washed. In this process, I should include a definite understanding that going to or visiting the house in Beaver Meadow, formerly owned by Mr. Patterson and now owned, as I understand, by Messrs. Goodwin and North, was prima facie evidence of undesirability from the point of view of the college interest. If the name Patterson sounds familiar, it's because Orr referenced Patterson in his letter about the rumors circulating his junior year. William McKay Patterson was a member of the class of 1924, along with Richard Morin, and was a prominent female impersonator. Joseph Goodwin was a member of the class of 1926, a current student and female impersonator. Beaver Meadow refers to a house a little way off campus, most likely near or on Beaver Meadow Road in Norwich, Vermont. Supposedly, this undesirable behavior is occurring off campus at this Beaver Meadow house frequented by at least these members of the Dartmouth players. It may seem like a coincidence that Dartmouth players are the ones with whom President Hopkins is concerned, but three days later, the secretary of Epsilon Kappa Phi writes on behalf of the fraternity to President Hopkins. The letter informs the president that Epsilon Kappa Phi unanimously accepted the resignations of Joseph Goodwin, William McKay Patterson, and Ralph G. Jones. The fraternity promises to President Hopkins that it will take a hard stance against drinking and that it has decided to refrain from any activity which may be misinterpreted as effeminacy. Suddenly, it no longer appears that this concern is related to drinking alone. 
When President Hopkins first wrote to Dr. Bancroft, he used the language of effeminacy to discuss his fears about sexuality, which is the same rhetoric used here by Epsilon Kappa Phi. Even though the two should not be, masculinity and sexuality are conflated with the assumption that effeminacy indicates homosexuality. To complicate matters further, Lester M. Richard, member of the class of 1926, writes to President Hopkins the next day in order to defend his friend against circulating rumors. He writes, Obviously, Goodwin has committed certain indiscretions, but that he is either an addict to drugs or that he is a moral degenerate, I vehemently deny. In my opinion, Goodwin is the victim of the unlimited gossip which is rampant on the campus of Dartmouth College. I regret to say that I have never seen a community where more vicious or damaging gossip was invented on the slightest impetus than Dartmouth College. Undergraduates seem to take the greatest of delight in spreading malicious rumors. For example, a man had not called upon another man more than three times before I heard them referred to as Mr. A and his wife. Both were men of unquestionable character. Where community is that inclined toward gossip, I cannot venture to say what has happened to their reputation in a week's time. Rumors regarding the faculty are accepted with equal credulity. If it isn't clear, Richard's letter has only indicated a pervasive culture of gossip occurring on Dartmouth's campus, but it also outlines a rampant culture of homophobia, one which isn't just limited to the Dartmouth players. It seems that the behavior of Dartmouth men is under constant scrutiny to ensure that it is in line with strict heterosexual expectations of behavior. A later portion clarifies of what exactly Goodwin is being accused. Richard explains, As I explained to you Saturday morning, Goodwin unfortunately assumed a pose which could but feed this hunger for scandal. This pose, acquired from Messrs. Patterson and Jones, entailed an obligation to do and say those things which were not ordinary. The result was that Goodwin did and said those things which, while harmless, were both unnatural and unbecoming, and which were construed as queer and even erotic. I point to such innocently conceived and variously interpreted expressions as I'm going to have a witching or I'm having an affair with so-and-so. I have known Goodwin long enough to know that such expressions and comparable actions mean absolutely nothing, but I realize that they can be construed in many ways. It was during Goodwin's freshman year that Dartmouth first attempted to become aesthetic. An idea arose then that to be aesthetic required certain departures from the normal. Goodwin immediately assumed very definite affectations. All this then points to one thing, that Goodwin has time and again made himself the target of this gossip, to which I have already referred. Certain rumors were broadcast about Goodwin which gathered increased momentum and supposed proof as they circulated. I do not wonder that the Dartmouth Old Guard were alarmed when certain of these rumors reached them. But if empty gossip is to be taken as evidence, I am of the opinion that there is sufficient evidence to destroy the fraternity system at Dartmouth. Finally, it's undeniable that Dartmouth's culture, particularly its culture surrounding masculinity, was antithetical to and threatened by anything departing from heterosexual norms. And it's not just the administration who is concerned. The student body and its alumni perpetuate this homophobic policing. In the opinion of some, it is the threat posed by the students which is even worse. Having heard of the accusations against Goodwin, Clifford Orr wrote to President Hopkins, primarily criticizing the president for turning the handling of the affair over to Paleopolis. 
If it weren't crystal clear that the concerns surrounding Goodwin, Jones, and Patterson are grounded in homophobia, or compares the events to those surrounding Zuckerman, in stressing the importance of privacy in addressing these rumors, or discloses his fear for Goodwin at the hands of Dartmouth students. Now I have known Joe Goodwin only extremely casually and know nothing of his temperament, but I fear the public undergraduate hounding can have no constructive effect at all upon him. He can be nothing but an outcast now, and his disgrace will follow him all his life. It seems such a different matter from drinking or gambling or bootlegging. Such things should be undergraduate affairs, as they are, through DOG and so forth, that the fellows will, in afterlife, overlook such things. But the Goodwin crime will never be forgotten, and they never should have known, officially. With Patterson and Jones, if reports say true, I have no sympathy. And there, you were right. Misconduct on the part of a returning graduate is not to be tolerated. With Goodwin, I have more sympathy because of his age and because undoubtedly Patterson and Jones are directly responsible for his whole present character. I am sorry to see him rudely and permanently dragged officially into the light and given to the mob. But Orr's letter is dated October 26th, and by then, the incident was nearly already settled. On October 12th, President Hopkins wrote to Goodwin, requesting a meeting with the belief that such a talk will be desirable for mutual understanding between us. And on October 28th, President Hopkins responds to Orr, detailing more thoroughly his ultimate concerns. President Hopkins explains that, The original move in the matter was made by a group of undergraduates who resented the fact that some of their friends are being, in their phrase, unveiled by Joe Goodwin to go over to Beaver Meadow and to be made drunk by Patterson and Jones, and so forth. Always, in everything which has come up for over a year in connection with certain conditions in the college, Patterson and Jones have loomed as rather sinister figures, and Goodwin as a weak and spineless accomplice. Meanwhile, after a period of absence, we allowed a man to come back to Dartmouth this fall who is perfectly all right and variously talented when he is sober, but who loses every semblance of self-respect or decency when he is drunk. One of the conditions of his returning to college was that he should let liquor alone, and this was not only his agreement with me, but with various undergraduates with whom, for one reason or another, he was associated. President Hopkins goes on to describe one particular student, who after a period of absence, was allowed to return to Dartmouth in the fall under the agreement that he would not drink. He writes that, this whole matter is a long series of tragic happenings in a family where there have been two suicides and where unquestionably there is some abnormal strain in the children. The abnormal trait, however, is suppressed when liquor does not loose it. The next thing that developed was a call early one morning from some of the men interested in this boy who had knowledge of my concern regarding his rehabilitation. The statement was made flat-footedly that Joe Goodwin had taken him over to Beaver Meadow that Patterson and Jones had there got him drunk, and that various of the circumstances attached to the party. Again, it's not clear what President Hopkins means by abnormal, but the same rhetoric of abnormality was used in his letter concerning Zuckerman. President Hopkins goes on to justify his actions due to growing unrest amongst the student body. He reveals, Such threats were being made, for instance, as the burning of the place at Beaver Meadow, the horning of Epsilon Kappa Phi, and... Even it was seriously suggested that the students run Joe Goodwin out of town with attendant features which would have been a disgrace to the college. Finally, President Hopkins heavily criticizes the behavior of Joseph Goodwin following these events. He describes, 
Meanwhile, Joe Goodwin himself has apparently been completely oblivious to the whole situation, has been callous and obtuse in regard to the implication of various matters with which he has been closely identified, and certainly has not been frank with any of us who desire to help him. Long before the matter became the subject of public discussion, which it now is, I offered him the privilege of resigning or withdrawing from the college and dropping the whole proposition, and was assured by him that he was grateful for the opportunity and would accept it. Since when, he has withdrawn that and stated that he preferred to remain and fight it out. An attitude with which I should have much sympathy if the facts were different or if some facts were not existent of which I know. This portion of the letter is particularly interesting given how Zuckerman was treated by President Hopkins. Unlike Zuckerman, Goodwin refuses to leave the college of his own volition, an action which, to President Hopkins, may indicate a lack of regard for Dartmouth's reputation, as well as a refusal to acknowledge any wrongdoing in his behavior. Although President Hopkins concludes that the incident will be handled as a liquor proposition pure and simple, the possibility that Goodwin's expulsion is the result of something else still lingers. Such a belief is even more pertinent in that, in the penultimate paragraph, President Hopkins wonders again whether or not there is something inherently debilitating and perverting in giving oneself over to cultural interests alone, an apprehension that recalls the question concerning the relationship between effeminacy and the dramatics, which he posed to Dr. Bancroft about three and a half years prior. Despite our misgivings, this explanation is enough for Orr, who ultimately offered his support of President Hopkins' actions, describing them as inevitable, although not admirable. In the second letter, Orr discloses, Naturally, I could see that over Joe hung the influence of Patterson and Jones, for whom I never held a brief, but of whom, frankly and honestly, I never knew a disgusting thing. I was principally worried at this influence because I feared it might result in Joe aping the other two and making a parade of his effeminacy as did and do the others. But those fears were dropped when in the summer I learned for the first time of his love for the military life and his two or three years decided success at Camp Devens. There neither Patterson or Jones could ever follow him. The relationship between military life and masculinity is revealed by Orr, opening questions as to whether or not he may be drawing upon his own experience as a student soldier. Interestingly, later in the letter, Orr relates Zuckerman's opinion on the situation. He writes, Since I wrote you and before your letter came, I talked with Harvey. He took a more lenient attitude toward your action than I. He quoted your there is no problem as applied to conditions in 1921 and 1922. The growing problem at Yale, the Princeton problem, which has reached a climax, and the ever-present problem at Harvard, he believes, justifies your action in itself. There must be no problem at Dartmouth, and publicity is the only way to prevent it. Like attracts like in matters of this kind more strongly than in any other. Deal always gently, and you defeat your purpose. It is the old story on making an example when conditions require that example. They did not in 1921. Possibly they do now. That was his view. With it, I do not hold. But with your action, I do now agree, since you told me so frankly your experiences with Joe, your offers of quiet withdrawal, and his open defiance of them. Oddly enough, when President Hopkins wrote to Dr. Bancroft nearly four years ago, he expressed similar concerns as to what occurred at other universities. And so, Joseph Goodwin was expelled, or separated, from Dartmouth College. Afterwards, he attended and eventually graduated from MIT. During this time, if anyone attended Dartmouth, even for just one year, they were still considered a Dartmouth graduate. 
Goodwin's alumni folder includes a note that he requests that this information not be given to the college as he considers himself an alumnus of MIT. If you're curious about what happened to the other young men, William McKay Patterson married his wife, Helen Ellison Patterson, in 1926, not long after the fallout concerning the events which occurred at Beaver Meadow. Ralph G. Jones worked as the secretary and treasurer for the Consumers Rubber Company, which provided electrical insulating materials. In April of 1931, he married Bertha Jane Anderson. Henry Nichols Sanborn was employed by Dartmouth College and was an instructor of English from 1903 to 1905. Later, Sanborn became a librarian at the Bridgeport Public Library in Connecticut. He died suddenly on the 22nd of February, 1922, and left his $20,000 estate to Mr. Ogilville Henry Sheldon. In his will, Sanborn bequests him the estate in gratitude for many kindnesses and sympathy in sickness and misfortune, and chiefly in token of my very great regard for him. At his request, Sanborn is buried in the Hanover Cemetery beside his mother. You can visit their graves today. Zuckerman became a member of the clergy, a minister, and married Mary Blair Williams, with whom he had three children. As for the student who committed suicide, there seems to be no record of him. Not in cast lists, alumni files, or alumni catalogs. There's always the possibility that President Hopkins over-embellished the incident, but if he did not, then the silence in the archives speaks volumes. Clifford Orr died fairly young from cancer. He was a writer, publishing the novel The Dartmouth Murders. Near the end of his life, he moved back to Hanover, and in 1947, he donated the 125 letters that he wrote to his parents throughout his freshman, sophomore, and junior years. Today, it's nearly 100 years since all of these events occurred, and in many ways Dartmouth is a different place. But the history of this institution shouldn't disappear. Even though nothing can be changed about the experiences of these men, there are students whose experiences at Dartmouth can be changed. These stories remind us both how Dartmouth has grown and calls to action to ensure that, as we move forward, we are indeed writing a new story into the archive. And whether or not Orr recognized this when he donated his letters, his foresight was right. In the acquisition correspondence, Orr states that his letters would be of no possible interest now, of course, but along about 2018, someone might like to see how a student soldier of the First World War was taking it. And just as Orr predicted, 101 years later, we do. Insight is 2019 is a production of the Dartmouth College Library and is produced as part of the celebration of Dartmouth's 250th anniversary, highlighting selected objects from Rahner Special Collections Library. This episode was written and directed by Catherine Crithers and produced by Peter Carini. Our sound engineer was Julia Logan. Special thanks to our voice actors, Lucas James as Clifford Orr, Peter Scow as President Hopkins, Ethan Smith as Richard Morin, Adam Riegler as Dr. Bancroft, and Alex Wells as Lester Richard. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will continue to enjoy Hindsight is 2019. Hey, podcast listeners, this is Julia Logan, sound engineer for this episode. The following songs were used in this episode. Surfing Day by Marcos Balanos, Living in a Dream by Twin Guns, and Deluge by Cellophane Sam. 
All songs were sourced from the Free Music Archive.